Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The grass withers and flower fades, but God's word abides forever. I've heard it said that the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. The truth must first make you miserable. To own the misery of your own self in sin, in rebellion against God, and your own inability to rescue yourself, to deliver yourself, to take yourself from the place of darkness. Ecclesiastes has a ministry for us, and it is a ministry of misery, if I can put it that way. Now, this does not sound entirely like a message we would want to hear. Let's hang a sign out by the road. Come in for some dour news, guaranteed to wipe the smile off your face. After all, don't we want happiness? Don't we want security and comfort? Why, Mr. Preacher, do you spoil our party and rain on our parade? What is the preacher parade before us in these verses. The vanity of human generations, verse 4. The cycle of nature, verses 5 through 7. The bottomless appetite of the eye and the ear, verse 8. And then pointing out that what we are after, what we do now, it's all going to be forgotten, verses 9 through 11. Why the book of Ecclesiastes? It is a book of wisdom. And when we think about the Lord guiding us in wisdom, we often think of the Lord making smooth the path ahead, and that is certainly true. But not only does the Lord give to us a smooth path, 
Yet other times, like in Ecclesiastes, gives us a a pebble in our shoe, a, a bee in our bonnet, to make us uncomfortable and unsettled with our own instincts, with our own experience. You see, learning wisdom in in part means unlearning our own naivete. It's interesting, our English word naive derives from the Latin word meaning natural. And that connects with something very biblical. Because by nature, we are not wise. Romans chapter 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so as we are born in sin, we're also born in folly. And God gives to us his word uh, in his wisdom as he trains us like a shepherd to teach us away from our folly and into his wisdom. The end of the book, he'll say the wise words of the wise are like goads. Young people, do you know what a goad is? There'll be these cowboys who need to get the cattle moving in a certain direction. And they have a very pokey stick. And they poke those cows to have them move a certain way, a sharp instrument. And we are to feel, in a sense, the poke in our ribs, the thorn in our sides, so to speak, because the shepherd not only has a rod and staff, but also the goads to cause us to walk in the Lord's ways. Well, as we take up this text this morning, we're going to be seeing how there's no gain to be found. Uh, According to verse uh, 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? No gain, firstly, in human history. Secondly, no gain in appetite and memory. And finally, the breakthrough. Well, firstly, in human history, there is no gain to be found. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, it's interesting the way it's phrased. We often hear of a generation comes and a generation goes, but it's in reverse here. And the point that the preacher is making is very simply this. What does one generation leave behind? Very simply, another generation. Generation X begat generation Y, begat the millennials. Yes, there's certain distinctives in each of these generations and how they think and behave. But what is true of any generation? Eventually, the fathers and mothers pass from the scene Their children replace them, and so it goes. Even what is called the greatest generation, even they die and others are born after them. Whatever one generation accomplishes, what do they have to show for it in the end? Another generation They can't enjoy the fruits of their labor forever, but we are all forced to pass it along to our progeny. Psalm 90 says, we fly away like a dream. You read the book of Genesis, it's actually 
a book that is organized around generations. And one of the repeated refrains uh, we can find, for example, in Genesis uh, chapter 5. How does this text read, written by Moses? When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Even with those who experienced a tremendously long lifespan compared to ours, there is this reality, this consistent note ringing like a bell throughout the book. And he died. And he died. Who is the preacher that writes Ecclesiastes? He tells us in verse 1 that he is the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Think of the generation of kings, of royalty. What is described in verse 4 is also true of kings, not only for those in low places, but those in the highest places who hold the scepter and wear the crown. You read the book of uh, kings and uh, the Bible, for example, First uh, Kings, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in, with his fathers in the city of David, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his place. The grave of kings, it's still a grave, isn't it? which is why he'll later say it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Kings, too, only produce the next generation and no more. The second half of verse 4, but the earth remains forever. Humanity, transient, ephemeral, like a breath, Man is dust, and to dust he returns. The soil with which man struggles and wrestles all his days, eventually this soil, this dirt, overtakes us in the end. Then the preacher uses an analogy for this endless cycle of generations in verse 5. He tells us the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. He gives us this picture of the daily repetition and repeated cycle. Now, if you remember a contrasting picture in Psalm 19, there we read that the sun emerges with joy like a bridegroom from his bridal chamber. But here the sun is seen from a different angle. It's like he's a racer uh, running on the track, and you see him as he comes back sweating and gasping for air. And as he passes by, he tells you, what am I going to do next? The same thing over again. The sun in 
verse 5 is kind of like Sisyphus in Greek mythology. Remember him pushing the rock to the top of the hill? What does he get to do the next day? The rock rolls back to the bottom and he pushes the rock back up. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the same job and it just never ends. Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. You see what the preacher is doing. The conclusion that he's asking us, he's teaching us to reach. Where is the sun going on his journey? The sun always comes back to the place where it started from. If you want to think of it from the solar-centric perspective, where is the Earth going? It makes its orbit around the sun only to come back to the place where it first began. What about the wind? Verse 6. He views the wind as following a set course. The king is standing on his rooftop in the palace in Jerusalem. He feels that breeze sweeping in from the Mediterranean. And the wind blows some leaves off the trees and travels north again. Almost like the hurricane season that we have recently gone through each year. We see the hurricanes forming in the waters and making their northeastern path. So, preacher, so Mr. Ecclesiastes, that's his name, what's your point? Well, the point is this, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life under the sun shares in the characteristics of the sun itself. Our striving and our work, what do we gain from it? We can't seem to break through to the profit side, to the surplus side of the ledger. It's as the inimitable Yogi Berra said, deja vu all over again. What's it all add up to? Human generations, human history, vanity. The word is like vapor. Uh, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Proverbs 31 says, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Same term there, fleeting. It's like trying to grab a hold of the wind. You can't do it. You can maybe measure the speed of the wind. You can feel how hot or cold it is. But you're not going to control what direction the wind goes in. And so what he's telling us is no matter how much we try to master our own lives with our own resources and energies. There is another power that is greater than us and to which we are subject and that we cannot overcome ourselves. And so there's this great sense, isn't there, 
of frustration. There's this great sense of facing life under the sun with this vanity and saying it's so topsy-turvy and absurd how things go. And I want to be very clear here. This is not the preacher pretending to take an atheistic or secular worldview. He is, in fact, describing how life really is after the fall, after the curse. Ecclesiastes is a book about how the world is patterned because of God's judgment due to sin. Romans chapter 8. Creation was subjected to what? Futility or vanity by him, by God, who subjected it in hope. So there's no ultimate gain or profit in human history. Secondly, no gain in human appetite and memory. Verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. At the end of the book in chapter 12, he's going to say that of the making of many books, there is no end. There is no point at which someone's going to run in and say, stop the presses. The the last book has been written. The last insight has been made. No more needs to be said. Has anyone seen something so beautiful that they then say, I'm going to put blinders on my eyes from this point forward because of that sight? Or has anyone heard a piece of music so lovely that they then stick cotton balls in their ears and say, I'm not going to hear anything more? The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You always want more. The preacher gives another illustration in verse 7 to underscore this. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You can walk by the banks of a large river. Sometimes the river might be higher. Sometimes it might be lower. But where is that water going? Ultimately, to the sea. And no matter how much rain falls on the mountains or snow comes down, the oceans are never like the bathtub with the plug stopped so that it overflows. Now, the author, the preacher, is not getting into why this is all the case. He does not get into evaporation and condensation and precipitation and so forth. But his overall point in making this analogy in verse 7 is that all the movements, all the energy that is expended in creation's movements mirror the movements of human history and culture. Our desires are like the ocean. You can put massive volumes of input into it, but we never stop and say, I've reached my limits, and now I'm satisfied. 
now I'm full. There was a writer who once wrote, on or about December 1910, human character changed. Now by this, she meant a reordering of relationships between masters and slaves, parents and children, and husbands and wives. But guess what? That's flat out wrong. Human character has not changed. The procession of generation does not alter the face of humanity. That which is born of flesh, our Lord teaches, is flesh. And what the royal preacher writes of the eye and ear in verse 8, we have the same eyes and ears in our day, and there is no escaping it. And so we come to the very center of our passage, and I think it's the theme of these first 11 verses, and that's in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. He is tired. He is spent and exhausted in the face of these realities. And I think this is one of the reasons why this book resonates in our time and in our situation. Because we have seen all the grandiose promises of science and technology and every philosophy, but it turns out hollow. It turns out empty. And we ought to be, just like the preacher here, come to a sense of our own weariness before the Lord. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. I read this news piece from a few months ago. This is an example from YouTube video creators. And this was titled, YouTube's Hottest Stars Feeling Burned Out by the Whole Experience. One of the content creators says, we have a job where you can't take off because there's this fear of becoming irrelevant. I can't even go home to see my mom. Trying to keep up, trying to continue to satisfy the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh, it's truly makes you bone tired. There's that poem that goes, miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. That's the sense that this preacher king experiences. And it means, I think, something comforting for us. It means that if we feel that sense of fatigue in our own hearts and emotions, that there is one who felt it before and was honest, confessing it before God. And it's not something that we can count as fundamentally ungodly or unrighteous. In fact, this sense of weariness in light of the vanity in the world 
can only be the appropriate and fitting response. Verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us? Now, the preacher is not denying the unique experiences of individuals and human events. But we can take, for example, a World Series championship. What is it? Well, it's another example of competitors striving to achieve victory, the top place, and enjoying the fruits of their triumph. Our digital phones and technologies might seem novel, but what are we doing with them? We are listening, we are speaking, we are seeking to communicate and feel close to others. These desires are something that have been, been true from the beginning of time. What are skyscrapers that dot the downtown landscape? They are like the towers and palaces of old, enabling someone to gain a perch or a view above others. So much of what we call new and fresh is really often so much just a product repackaged and warmed over. So the saying that comes to mind is, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. What is human memory? It's like that sandcastle that you build on the beach. And no matter how many hours you've spent on it, eventually the tide comes and washes that sandcastle away. Does anyone know the name Tug Thompson? He was on the roster of the 1882 Cincinnati Red Stockings. Apparently he played outfield but I'm not sure if it was left or right or center. Does anyone know the name Elizabeth Redding? She was one of the members present as a visitor to the first meeting of the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936. But the only reason I happen to know about these figures is they're in the record. Their names are written down. But most people's names aren't written down. And even when they are written down, so many of us don't know who they are. I must be honest, I don't know the names of my great-great-grandparents. I don't know how many of you might. What about us? How many of us, as we walk in our office or campus, have thought to ourselves, even if I do excellent work, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, will anyone know I was here? Later in Ecclesiastes, there is a 
parable that seems to fit in this, if you'd like to turn over to chapter 9, and that is verse 13 through 16. I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words not heard. Here's a hero who was instrumental in saving his whole community, his whole city, but no one even remembers his name. So what is the preacher telling us in chapter 1? He's telling us that if we're banking on profits and gain in having our names memorialized, in being famous, think again. So many of us that we know from history that we think of as household names actually really just happen to be at the right time and the right place providentially. We can think of Esther, who was put into place, as Mordecai tells her, for such a time as this. But we have to face up to this and be sober-minded about this. And that's one of the things that Ecclesiastes ministers to us in, in a sober-minded conception of where to put our hopes, where to put our trust and confidence. Is it in human history? Is it in your own appetite? Is it in your memory? All those things add up only to vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Finally, the breakthrough. What should be our response to this sobering, and perhaps discouraging message. Well, the world has one, and it's encapsulated in this phrase. Do better. Do better. You see disappointment in others and in yourself? Dig deeper. Stretch yourself. Try harder. But let's say that even for one day, you were able to do your level best. The absolute best you could do. You were in the zone. You were focused. You were running on all four cylinders. Then what? Have you reached the place where the vanity and absurdity of the world is undone? And let's say you did this not only by yourself, but you linked arms with hundreds or thousands of others. You cooperated, and you walked in the same direction, seeking 
to change the pattern of life under the sun, what would still happen? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. You see, none of us can turn back the tide. None of us can undo the curse that has been placed upon creation by God. Later in the book, he will ask the question, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? The answer is no one. No, not one. Now, there are a few places in the New Testament where I think we can read a kind of commentary on Ecclesiastes 1. But I'm going to point out one, and that is from John chapter 6. There, the crowds have come, and they've fed on the bread that the Lord Jesus has miraculously served for them in the wilderness. He has given to them bread, just as the Lord has applied bread for Israel in her 40-year journey to the promised land. And there, Jesus tells us and teaches his disciples not to labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. Life in the flesh comes with an expiration date. Life that comes to an end, and there is no exception to that. But in his explanation of this to his disciples, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. Notice, the flesh profits nothing. Think about that in the context of Ecclesiastes 1. The flesh gains nothing. Everything connected with human insight, human ability, human capacity, it cannot produce true, lasting life. What is the source of true life and life abundant? It is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit by which God is able to do what verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 1 says is impossible for us to do. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? The prophet Isaiah says that the Lord declares, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is promising to a weary, burdened, hopeless people in themselves that he is going to create new heavens and a new earth. Oh, there is an answer to the exhaustion and weariness that we have in this vain world. And that is the new world that is dawned 
through the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. This is God's new thing. Where the old has passed and the new has come. The curse of the old creation has been broken in Christ. And how has he, has he done it? Not by bypassing it, but by entering into it. You see, the breakthrough comes as Jesus enters into the curse. For as he goes to the cross, what does he wear? The crown of thorns. The crown of judgment. The crown of futility. And when he is on the cross, who testifies to the judgment that is taking place? Even the sun grows dark. The very sun that Ecclesiastes 1 speaks of, of under the sun. The sun bears testimony that Christ's sacrifice is overturning the vanity, overturning the judgment and condemnation that has fallen upon us. One early church father writes, He who hung the earth was himself hanged. He who fixed the heavens was fixed with nails. He who laid the foundation of the earth was laid up on a tree. Though the people did not tremble, the heavens trembled. As he is raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is he? The Apostle Paul says he is life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit, the spirit who gives you life and life abundant. And so are you weary? Are you sapped? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that having heard your word, this might